Mini episode 1227 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to mini-episode 1227 of the FDH Lounge. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris, and we have a very, very special segment here today. We are taping a tribute to a legend, and we have a couple of folks who are very well-versed to be able to speak about his life and what he meant. And really, for any of us who have football as a large part of our lives, we understand how important uh, a figure Don Shula was in the game of football and arguably wider than that in society. And we have a couple of guests here today. Well, one guest and one regular show contributor who can amplify this. I will get to our very special guest and uh, bring him in first here. When you're talking about some of the great offensive linemen of the late 20th century, one name that's really got to be on the list is Bart Oates, because Bart Oates was a gentleman who was a five-time Pro Bowl player, three-time Super Bowl champion, two-time champion in the USFL, and truly uh, somebody who played at a high level and uh, has been a lot around the, the game of football subsequently and, and just kind of really leveraging uh, the life lessons from the game, contributing now as president of the NFL Alumni Association and uh, being somebody who is uh, working to, to get uh, really the positive spirit out there to uh, past players and uh, has been just a, a great uh, member of his uh, community as well with many other volunteer services that he does and uh, a true gentleman and somebody that we're proud to have on the show here today, Bart Oates. Welcome to the program, sir. It's great to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate having you on, and I always appreciate having on one of our regular FDH Lounge dignitaries, one of our longest-time contributors to the show. Uh, you could hear him over a period of time on such outlets as WFAN in New York and SNY. Presently these days, most likely to hear him on with good friend Joe Stazak on 97.5 The Fanatic in Philadelphia, where he is a regular on Joe's show, and then, of course, also the podcast that the two do together, Callous Remarks. Uh, it is always uh, a lot of fun to have on uh, my friend, the very learned Steve Callis, and somebody who I know has his own thoughts on the life and legacy of Don Shula. Steve, uh, great to have you on today. Great to be with you and Mark, Rick. Looking forward to it. Truly, yes. I am looking forward to uh, getting thoughts from you gentlemen on this and uh, a figure as important as Don Shula. And I had mentioned off-air just a second ago here to, uh, to Bart that uh, I am a lifelong, uh, well, first and foremost, I must admit, Cleveland Browns fan, resident of uh, the North Coast. But uh, the Dolphins have always been sort of a little secondary team for me going back in the day. And uh, Don Shula is just somebody that I have always uh, idolized and just considered to be uh, the very best as far as uh, the, the coaches and contributors to the game. A very, uh, very worthy candidate to be on anybody's Mount Rushmore 
uh, for the NFL. And uh, to start with you, uh, Bart, so your career uh, really coincided with uh, the final chapter, I would say, of, of Don Shula's career, bridging the time between his final Super Bowl and uh, the end there in Miami. They would subsequently make another AFC championship game in the early 90s, and uh, it was sort of a fitful time uh, for him trying to, uh, to to learn the new, as everybody was, the new salary cap system slash free agency in the NFL. So it was a time of great uh, change that uh, Don was dealing with, as you all were dealing with around the league. Uh, playing, of course, as much as you did uh, in the, the NFC, obviously uh, just the, uh, the Giants and the 49ers, you would only catch the Dolphins every couple of years. So just wherever you want to take it, I would say, as far as your thoughts on the man, any, any crossings that you might have had with him post-football, things that you observed at the time, basically what Don Shula meant to you. I, I hesitate to even, uh, can't compare him to anybody because he is the guy that coached longest, uh, has the most wins, rather, and that's what this business is about. I mean, the only team that has had a perfect season, and uh, he's just a, uh, he's a tremendous guy. And I think everybody that I know that plays for him uh, just always felt very highly of him. He's a fair guy, he handles his players fairly, he dealt with them in an honest way, type of guy that guys like to play for, whether that was in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. He was a guy that was able to motivate people. Um, he understood what made people tick and helped them make you know, up and be successful at that time. You know, he, he was a guy who was able to change. He went from, a, you know, the pounded uh, offense that won the Super Bowl, and then he had Dan Marino. You know, he was a, he was a guy that could change. He very much did, and I, I, you know, I'd like to ask you a follow-up question now on the subject of uh, the perfect team that, that he had there, uh, because this is something where, and again, over the years, I have to say I took sort of a different view of it than did a lot of people. Uh, I always really got a big kick, and as a, as a fan of the perfect team, I mean, that was before my time, but I, I always appreciated the legacy of what they did and what him and Mercury Morris would be celebrating whenever they would be left alone atop the mountaintop. Uh, you, you always get a sense of uh, some people on some of the teams taking it the wrong way. Uh, you were on at least one Giants team that uh, started off the season pretty hot and made a pretty good run, uh, if I remember correctly, I think 1990. So uh, what were ever your thoughts at the time? Were, were you ever anybody that uh, whenever you would fall short and they would break out the champagne, would, would, would you think anything of it, or would you just uh, kind of uh, more so just sort of tip your cap to their accomplishment? They always could be back had their accomplishment. I mean, it, they, they were able to do it. And uh, no one else has been able to. And that speaks volumes in and of itself. Um, and so they were the type of team that, um, you know, traditionally they, they could match up well with pretty much anybody. Absolutely. Uh, that was that was always a hallmark was uh, the man's ability to adapt and, and lead and motivate under all different circumstances. And uh, to just to follow up further, uh, I'd like to turn to you, Steve, and just as far as some of the things that Bart outlined there, as far as the man and his legacy uh, in the league and uh, the, the way that he is remembered for all of his accomplishments, uh, for, for the style in which he carried himself, uh, etc. Anything you would like to add to that, Steve, as far as your impressions of the man? Wow, just a class guy from top to bottom, 347 wins. I mean, back-to-back Super Bowls, not just the perfect season. In fact, you guys probably both know that he had lost to the Cowboys before the perfect season. And in those three seasons, the Dolphins were 44-6-1. Maybe the 
or I have to go back and log. But what I was really interested in when I started researching his history, and I'm sure you guys know this, he played seven years in the NFL at a John Carroll College, Rick. I know you know them out in Cleveland, right? Yes. By you. Absolutely. Um, and I want to say maybe Matt Patricia went there. I know there's a present-day NFL coach that I've read that, that went there as well. And um, when I looked at his playing career, which, you know, nobody really looked at, he played for Paul Brown his first two years, and he then played for uh, Weed Eubank for three of his next four years. So think about that coaching tree before he even became a coach. And, of course, he wound up coaching against Eubank in the famous Super Bowl three. But, you know, he had five interceptions in 12 games in 1954 and five interceptions in nine games in 1955 for Weed Eubank. So I noticed his, who he learned from, and then he started as a defensive backs coach with the Detroit Lions, where George Wilson, who nobody knows, had won the Super Bowl with the Lions like the year before he came there. So I think he played for some incredible coaches and then got hired by George Wilson to be first the defensive back and then the defensive coordinator's coach. And then he became, you know, the beginning of the Don Shula legend. But I was incredibly impressed with the coaching backgrounds with guys he played for and worked for before he became the man in Baltimore. And then, of course, once he got to Miami, you know, the rest is history. Absolutely, yeah. Don Shula, of course, growing up in the greater Cleveland area. At John Carroll, I think it's Nick Casario and Josh McDaniels, if I'm not mistaken. I think they're the two big-time yeah, NFL figures. Right. I, I part of you. Yeah, I think they're the ones that went to John Carroll, if I'm not mistaken. But then, yeah, an original uh, draft pick of the Browns, I think, in 51, played a number of years for the Browns. And uh, crossed with the Browns again in 1964 as the losing coach in the NFL championship game, uh, the last time that my beloved Browns have won an NFL championship. It's been a long run uh, since then, obviously. But one of the things that I want to ask you about, uh, Bart, and looking at your background, I, I think you may be sort of, almost sort of uniquely uh, qualified to speak about this, at least among the three of us, as, as far as... The thing that happened in Don Shula's career after that run that he had there, because I have always looked at that run and thought to myself, aha, the World Football League, because you had a couple of the top stars from the Dolphins going there. And you flash forward ahead to the 80s, and there was really uh, an incredible skill set uh, that was there in the USFL. Some excellent players that came out of it. I know my Browns with Mike Johnson. I think also Eddie Johnson and Dan Fike, if I'm remembering correctly, but uh, some Mike great. Johnson. Mike Johnson was my Mike Johnson was my teammate. Oh really? Built up his stars, yeah. That's oh that I I forgotten what team he was playing for. Okay, oh yeah, God, I was always a big fan of his uh, back in the day. He he did a lot for uh, for those uh, dogs teams. But uh, in in terms of that, speak to the level of competition that you get in a rival league like that, and the way that it it, it sort of. A little bit dilutes the star power of the NFL because when the NFL is not a dynasty and you're having to divert some of the star power to another league, you can have things like that happen. And uh, it, it strikes me that there's a real parallel between the WFL and as much talent as you guys had in the USFL. That if you had a top team like the Dolphins and you lost a lot of talent there, that you might not be quite the same. Well, it, listen, you know, it was, the NFL would be more key uh, even in the three years of USFL. Sure. But it, 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 uh, there was a group of owners that uh, I, I, I loved it. I mean, I came out. I was very blessed. I, I was uh, 
Uh, he was the general manager. Jim Moore was the head coach. We had Calvin Bryant, Mike Johnson, had William Fuller, uh, we had Jim Mills, Landetta. All all those guys went on to become Pro Bowl players in the NFL. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, they just did a great job of uh, putting together. Jim Moore did a great job of coaching. And so we were. Yeah, and for me, I was I was very happy in the USFL, but when they uh, tried to try to convert to the NFL and go to the fall, and you saw the end kind of coming. And uh, you know, Trump was was on one side, Oldenburg was on the LA Express, Trump on the New Jersey General, and they were trying to get those kids to the NFL. Anyway, it was it was a great league. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was tremendous competition. It's a lot of really positive things that uh, that occurred. But yes, it was it was not the NFL. It was great. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and what a what a great breeding ground of talent it was, and uh, as you said, a lot of future NFL talent coming out of there, whether it be on the field, front office, coaching, as yeah. you alluded to. I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of similarities there as far as uh, you know the depth that the WFL uh, had as well, and that's a thing where uh, I, I would ask you. Uh, Steve Callis, as one of our sort of resident historians uh, in the lounge, along with myself. I mean, do, do you sort of share my point of view that things might have been different in the 70s? For, for my best friend, who, for anybody that doesn't think I'm that tolerant of a person, my best friend's a Steeler fan, so that ought to tell you all you know. I've always said to him, you know, things would have been a little different in the 70s uh, had the Dolphins not been broken up as they were by the WFL and remained an excellent team throughout the remainder of the decade, but it was never the same. But do you have the sense, Steve, that that was sort of a turning point in the in the 70s career of, of Don Shula, and that that's one of the reasons it took a while for him to kind of rebuild to get back to some Super Bowls? Well, I do have that sense, but I also have the sense that he already was a dynasty because he went to those three Super Bowls and won the last two. Yep. Uh, you know, and was there in the Super Bowl and still had a great career after that. But yeah, I agree with you. But back then, kind of like the deal was also true. You know, it's so hard to do it now. Back then, you these guys for many years, and frankly, that's why the Giants were great for a number of years when Mark played there. Uh, you know, nowadays it's totally different, of course, but yeah, so I think he could have won some more. Absolutely, Clemens going to six, only one goes two. Um, you know, never got over, according to him, never got over Super Bowl three. I uh, said it was the low point of his professional life, and of course, funny that he played against his old coach, Hugh uh, Um But still, you know, any metric you look at for him as a winner, you know, he had that very simple, you know, Bob Phillips, who was a pretty good coach in his own right way. So sure. That, and that legendary quote about Don Shula, he can take his and be yours, <laughs> and then he can take yours and be his. And that's really the greatest compliment you can give a coach, saying just give him either team, and he's going to beat you. I mean, that's how well-respected and rightfully so that he was. You know, he put Miami on the map. You know how bad they've been for the most part since he left He's definitely up there. I think just about all of us would agree. And it was a thing also, too, about the kind of man that he was, uh, and not merely as a leader, not merely as uh, what some people would consider to be a genius as far as the schematics of it, but uh, the moral fiber of the man. And uh, again, as I say, I'm very, very happy uh, to have you on for this uh, discussion, Bart, from your perspective and from being somebody who's uh, active in his church and ha- has a real sense here of, of what it means for a man to have a moral code. This is a thing where there, there's a famous story out there about how 
it was, I think, an Oakland Raiders playbook that inadvertently fell into the hands of one of his uh, players. And uh, Don Shula decided not to even look at it, not to use it. Uh, this is a man who uh, attended church himself uh, on a quite regular basis and, and lived it, and lived his faith, uh, and, and, and was not a hypocrite. Uh, a man who, despite being as competitive as the day is long, wanted to be remembered as, as somebody doing it the right way. So uh, talk about that, please, Bart, as far as the perception of the man. And you know, again, we, we know him as a great coach. We know him as all of these other things here, too but just as somebody worthy of being looked up to on a personal basis as well. Like I said, he, he, was, he was a guy that it was more than football. Uh, football is important, and, and he was going to do whatever it took to, to win. But he also recognized that it was part of the picture. It wasn't the whole picture. And that, that's what I, you know, talking with people at Europe know, that, that, uh, that played for him. He was the guy that, you know, they would, they would run through the brick wall for him. They knew that he had the best interest of the entire team and them individually. Very, very well said. Incredible integrity on the part of the man. And uh, I would turn to you in the same way, uh, Steve, because I know you have an appreciation for this as well. And that, uh, again, there's been much made by the media over a period of time as far as a contrast, if you will, in terms of moral codes. There are those who do it uh, Don Shula's way, and there are those who act like if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. So. It is one of these things where uh, when you pass from this earth and uh, there's talk about how you're going to be remembered, uh, I, I think it's really excellent for Don Shula that he is remembered as being truly excellent in a full-spectrum kind of way, not merely as a football coach. Well, everything you read about him or hear about him, including what Mark was saying, honesty, integrity, sincerity, I don't know if that's a lost art nowadays in the NFL or in the whole world, but clearly he was above the fray when it came to that kind of stuff. The one thing I did want to mention, though, I think another word for him as a coach is versatility, because he really was, as you guys all know, both know, he, he really was a defensive coach. He played DB in the NFL. He was first a defensive backs coach and then the defensive coordinator with the Lions in the early 60s. You know, they had guys like Night Train Lane and Dick LeBeau. Yes, that Dick LeBeau, who was still coaching a couple of years ago. Alex Karras, Joe Smith. He was a defensive guy, and then he turns around and takes uh, a group of quarterbacks, incredible quarterbacks like Dan Marino. Uh, I don't know if Bob Grizzly was an incredible quarterback, but, you know, Shula said he was a thinking man's quarterback. Uh, he said Johnny Unitas was, and he played with Unitas, he didn't cross him, but he said Unitas was the mentally and physically toughest player he ever saw. But he took David Woodley, the youngest quarterback ever, to the Super Bowl. They did play. Uh, and also Earl Morrill. And you know the story because uh, he replaced, uh, he put Johnny United in too late supposedly when they lost Super Bowl three. That a couple of years later when Greasy got hurt, which he did get hurt, he broke his leg. And then back in the playoffs, he put Greasy back in for Earl Morrill in the second playoff game. And Earl Morrill had like led the league in passing. And he was years later said, well, it's because I thought I had to get my best guy in. And of course, Greasy won that Super Bowl and both Super Bowls. So my point is, he not only went from a defensive coach to a complete coach, including the offense with these kinds of quarterbacks, but he had a guy like Unitas who felt as mentally and physically as to him. He had a guy like Dan Marino who he said to the day in 2013, he said he's the greatest thrower of the football. And you know what? You can still make that case today. Um, and he had a guy like Reese who he called as a defensive quarterback because he said if he threw more than 10 or 11 times a game, we were in trouble. And if you look at those two Super Bowls, he didn't throw more than 11 
in the air. And on top of all of that, again, people don't really know, he started out as a defensive player and a defensive coach. So in my book, that makes him one of the most versatile coaches of all time. Well, yes, I would disagree. I, 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 you know, I, it's very, very good point. I mean, if you look at Bill Belichick, I think most people say, listen, he's given his penchant for winning the big game and being in the big game. And, you know, no one's done better than that than him. And, and well, people that, you know, say you pick a team. Don Shula was, you know, it was, he had good players, but he put his players in positions to be good. But he played a full game, meaning that he had, he said, I need three phases of the game. I, I need an offense. I need special teams. And nobody's bigger than the game. Nobody's bigger than this team. So we're not going to just sit there and throw the ball for the sake of throwing the ball. You know, you imagine doing that today, and today's world with quarterbacks and the wide receivers. I mean, what, what uproar and whining and complaining you get from the, from the players. So, we, you know, they just, but, but he's like, I, I just want to win the game. The bottom line is, is I have to outscore. And, and a lot of times you watch those those seven golfer games. They, they were boring to watch. Meaning that if you just from a if you wanted action and scoring, and that, that wasn't a Don Shula. He wanted control. He wanted low scoring. He wanted to keep it under control. You know, field position. In a lot of ways, he reminded me of, of uh, you know like Bill Parcells, and that was when that was Bill Parcells. He wanted to control the tempo of the game. Well, exactly, and you know, when you're talking about the old school uh, Don Shula prior to when Marino was there, uh, we might perhaps in the state of Ohio think Woody Hayes in terms of that with the three yards and a cloud of dust as far as the uh, philosophy. And uh, again, yeah, those teams back in the day, I mean, I might be wearing my Dan Marino jersey right here as we're speaking, but uh, my favorite player when I was a kid, really one of the reasons I got into being a Dolphins fan was Bob Greasy as a tiny little kid with glasses. Hard to believe I was ever that tiny, but... Tiny kid with glasses, you get picked on. Bob Greasy looks like a superhero out there on the field to you with glasses, making it happen. Uh, that was one of the reasons I really got into those teams uh, back in the day. And uh, he could use his feet an awful lot, too. I mean, he might not have been as fleet of foot as uh, Fran Tarkenton, but uh, Bob could move around and be a part of the ground attack as well. I, I want to follow up on something you mentioned there that you threw out, uh, Bart, when you're talking about the three phases of the game, because... Today, in 2020, I think that's more commonly understood, but if you go back over the, in, in time, the continuum here between, uh, say, the 60s and 70s and now, that it strikes me, for, for, think back to when you were playing, I don't really remember when you were playing there being as much emphasis on special teams as today, as being sort of a co-equal third branch of government, if you will. So wasn't he a little bit really kind of ahead of his time in terms of talking about the three here? Because it strikes me when I go back to like my childhood, I, I mostly remember hearing about the offense and the defense and, oh, yeah, special teams as well. But his emphasis to me always seemed to be a little bit more than what other people were making it, at least in the 70s. Well, I, you know, I think that a lot of coaches try to, um, and I don't think he was his own guy, but mm -hmm. he's the one that put the emphasis on it. I mean, he had solid special teams, kickers, hunters, return guys, that's, he put an emphasis on it. And he wasn't, like I said, I don't think he was the only guy, but he had, you know, I think about him, that's what, you know, I think of Don Shula as a, as a he was a coach. Yes. And he was going to put guys, and he coached guys. He said, I did and he, he coached games. There's a real talent to coaching a game. Uh, people think it's easy and people, you know, they, they look at a coach on the sideline, and, you know, but, but he understood it and he got the sense of it and he knew when there was, he just had this 
in those situations. This is an outcome determinative play. And if you make it happen, and, and the more times you can turn your way, you're going to win the football game. And and you may not win by much. Not, you know, Don Schuler wasn't blowing people out. Right. All their games, they were close games. Because he just understood how to coach. He, had, he didn't have to win by three touchdowns, four touchdowns. He just said, I just have a four touchdown win is the same as a one point win. And that, that to me sounds comfort. And, and he understood and he felt more comfortable that, hey, if I'm in this situation, I got a better chance of winning than the other guy. Yes, and very well said. And yeah, I, I I think you said it very well. That I mean, he clearly wasn't the only guy talking about special teams back then. But it was maybe a little bit against the grain back in the '70s to talk about it as as much or put as that much emphasis as he did. And it really, really paid off for him because he was so good at finding the subtle little nuances. Uh, I, I have to ask you before we bring this all the way around, uh, Bart. That uh, speaking to you in the time right now that we are all. Going through with the uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, I know that this has to be a tough time for many of the players in your NFL alumni association. Uh, are, are things uh, generally uh, working well from from the association angle as far as getting help out to people and staying on top of things? I know it has to be very very challenging for you guys right now. It is it's challenging for many people. It's challenging for many people. Not just our guys. Sure. We, you know, my my mandate is to. Uh, benefit to care for my own. We have two primary missions. That's caring for kids and caring for our own. You know, we, uh, 37 chapters will raise money and partner with charities in their families to, to help make their communities a better place. And we will work with uh, like-minded people and, and others that will give the players benefits that will help them in a post-play career life. So that's what, our, that's what our mission is. That's what I'm committed to, to working on. It is a great mission, and uh, I would look forward to uh, hopefully catching up with you uh, over time and staying on top of uh, what you guys are doing uh, in that way. It's it's a great service, and uh, God bless you for being of service in that way. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today, Bart. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it, and uh, our friend, uh, the great Steve Callis, longtime FDH Lounge dignitary, uh, contributor of more than a decade now. Uh, where does the time go? But, uh, Steve, a pleasure as always. Thank you for giving your thoughts on the great man as well. Yeah, great to be with both of you. Really appreciate it. Thank you both, and thank you, everybody, for joining us for FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1227.